Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. You're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. Today's episode is a special one. On Power in the Pandemic, we've been featuring and will continue to elevate the voices of people and workers most affected by this COVID-19 pandemic. But in a time of multiple interrelated crises that have brought to the fore inequalities and exclusions that continue to persist in our societies, we want to focus our attention on a pandemic that merits extra special attention today, and that's racism, and the way that it plays out, especially in processes of development, humanitarian aid, and social justice endeavors. Given recent events in the United States, which have sparked mass protests calling for racial justice, not only there, but across the entire world, we ought to talk about this right here as well. In the midst of compulsory confinement and social isolation, masses have gathered in public spaces in many different countries with signs that read statements like, the real pandemic is racism. And in this dystopian but very real pandemic of police brutality and global racism, protesters are actually essential workers. This is not a new conversation, and it's not a conversation reserved for U.S.-centered experiences of racial relations. International development institutions have been coming under fire for a very long time for perpetuating the power dynamics of colonization through their own work. Colonial legacies and their ripples are felt everywhere, with localized yet very similar historical patterns that have rendered the global power relations that we have today. And while these are very uncomfortable topics, which many prefer to avoid, they are the conversations that we must have, precisely because in order to oppose racism, we first have to acknowledge it, and our blind spots can only be reconciled in dialogue with one another. So let's talk about racism and development. But the biggest challenge here is how do you talk to multiple and diverse audiences about the complex issues surrounding race in a way that both challenges assumptions and leaves space for transformation? Now, this is something that Dr. Robtel Nijay Paley tackled in front of a very large audience of academics and practitioners during her plenary address last June 2019 at the Development Studies Association Conference. As a Liberian academic, activist, and author, Robtel delivered a keynote she titled Decentering the White Gaze of Development, which laid out the ways in which development thinking and praxis is fundamentally raced. And I later got the chance to speak with her about it a few months ago when I visited Oxford University, where she is currently a Leverhulme Career Fellow at the Department of International Development. Beyond a discussion about power relations marked by race, this is ultimately part of a broader, complex debate around who gets to decide what is development, progress, and justice, and what isn't. Fundamentally, it's a much deeper existential questioning of the worldview that guides our life and also our work. And it requires us decentering this conversation equitably away from just the context of the US and racism there. To do this, Reptel asks us, how complicit are we all in upholding the notion that whiteness, which is often geographically equal to northernness, is our only reference of progress? Because when we talk about racism, we're also talking about the structures that uphold it, which are the systems of power, money, and decision-making that go into the architecture of the development and humanitarian sectors. Now, this, of course, echoes some of the ideas that many post-colonial and post-development thinkers have explored over the last decades. But beyond structures, also at an individual level, we are all susceptible to being formed by the power dynamics around us. 
This is reflected in the ideas and knowledge production processes in the sector. For example, how expertise is defined and what types of knowledge are privileged to bureaucratic and legal procedures, such as the types of contracts that certain people get, the implicit bias in higher procedures, and the politics of funding, all the way to the day-to-day -day of how things play out in very real human interactions, which are often peppered by implicit and casual racism. I'll leave it at this for now and let you listen to Ruptel speak powerfully and clearly around the responsibilities of privilege, the limitations of decolonizing efforts, as well as the ways in which we can tackle racism in the work that we do. And as a follow-up to this interview, I really urge you to take a look at the resources that we're compiling on this topic, which will be updated periodically and published under the PowerShifts project. You can find these linked in the episode notes. Hi, Reptile. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me. Let's first hear a little bit about you. So you're now an academic. How did that come to be? It's funny. I took a very circuitous route to academia. I mean, I've always been interested in scholarship and ideas and using those ideas to speak truth to power in formal as well as quote-unquote informal ways. But I really started out as someone who was super interested in journalism after graduating from Howard University with two degrees in English literature and African studies. I always thought that I would be a writer in some shape or form. So I took a year off and I worked as a freelance journalist in Egypt and then also interned at the American University in Cairo. Came back, worked as a journalist for a year in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, um, and then decided that I wanted to go back and do a master's focused on African history and politics. So I did the master's here at Oxford and then applied for a fellowship to work for the government of Liberia, which is something that I'd never done before. So I worked for the government of Liberia, particularly the president of Liberia, the first female elected head of state in Africa, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And I worked as her special assistant for communications for two to three years, and then also eventually um, was a special assistant to her chief of staff. And after doing that for four years, I realized while I was working in Liberia, I also volunteered. I did an adjunct professor stint at the University of Liberia, as well as Stella Marie Polytechnic, which is a small university in Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. And I realized that um, even though the political realm was something that was super interesting to me, I really f came alive in the classroom, you know, exchanging ideas with students, marking their papers, transferring knowledge, being in front of the classroom, as well as being in the back of the classroom, really gave me a sense of purpose and fulfillment. And that's when I realized that I needed to go back to pursue the PhD and to possibly become an academic who focuses on policy-oriented work, development work, that is. Uh, so I came back did a three-year stint at SOAS, University of London, PhD in Development Studies, and was funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. So I think that's when, I think teaching in the University of Liberia and Stella Marie Polytechnic is when I realized that the autonomy to be in the classroom, the autonomy to, to, to write and to publish uh, was something that I wanted to focus on in my own professional career, because I'd done all these other things. Mm -hmm. But it's that intellectual autonomy that, mm -hmm. that I think is something that's so powerful and so so rare that academia provides that other sectors don't necessarily provide. Right, but I'm guessing that all of the insights and experiences and spaces that you moved through, you know, throughout your professional life, you know, have seeped into your work in academia? No, absolutely. I mean, those four years that I spent in Liberia as a policymaker in the development sector, as well as somebody who was interested in how do you transfer the information about what's happening in the corridors mm -hmm. of power to the layman, really gave me an idea about why I wanted to focus on policy-oriented yeah. 
development scholarship and not just scholarship for the sake of scholarship that would yeah. eventually sit in someone's shelf or in a journal that mm -hmm. nobody has access to. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, those are re the real critical moments along the way that made me realize that right. I wanted to produce knowledge for the sake of transformation, for right. the sake of enabling people to think of things very, very differently. Okay. So here our conversation took a slight detour to talk about Rob Tell's experience writing anti-corruption books for children, where she highlighted the need to take dense concepts such as corruption out of their imported linguistic prism, in the vast majority of cases a Euro-American one, and develop them in our own languages and culturally diverse contexts so that we can speak about these things with relevance to lived experience. We then came back to our discussion on the power imbalances inherent to development and a critical assessment of 21st century decolonial efforts. Have a listen. So I think in terms of visual representation of development, specifically in, in answering your question, development is visualized or, or portrayed as a global south phenomenon. So people in Latin America, people in Africa, people in Asia are the visual representation of what development looks like. But in terms of the power structures and how development is conceived and practiced and theorized, those are not the people who are at the very helm of determining what development is. And I think that is a travesty. And I mean, we're in the midst of what what some people call the decolonial turn, right? And in the scholarly decolonial turn, there's movements to decolonize the university, to decolonize the curriculum. And what are the implications of that? So for people who work in and on post-colonial countries, you know, because we're seeing a dearth of information and content and literature being written still with those power imbalances, still with those unresolved asymmetries of power. Sure. Right? Um, so what are the some of the limitations of this framing when those power imbalances continue to persist? Honestly, I've become very cynical about what I call the scholarly decolonial yes. turn. It's the 21st century scholarly decolonial turn. The reason I term it that is because this is not a new phenomenon, yeah. particularly Global South scholars, scholars from Africa, Latin America, Asia, have been talking about decolonizing the academy for as long as I know. So there's a scholar by the name of Edward Wilmot Blyden who was talking about this in the 1800s. W.E.B. Du Bois, a scholar from the United States, African-American, was talking about this in the 1800s. So I think with the 21st century version of this, mm -hmm. I think it's become very apolitical. So it stays in the ivory tower, it stays in academia. It's about changing the curriculum, changing perhaps the content of courses, but not linking those to the everyday dilemmas that people in the global south have. So everything from fighting autocracy to fighting homophobia to fighting ecological damage to fighting racism to fighting patriarchy. Those are the real issues that people in the global south are dealing with. And I think the decolonization as an academic pursuit is one that misses out on those linkages, right? And I've kind of pushed my colleagues and pushed my friends and pushed those who feel like they're at the forefront of this movement to really go back to the ground, mm -hmm. right? To take it out of the ivory tower, to take it out of academia, and to use their scholarship to amplify the voices of people who are really doing the heavy lifting. Those struggles are important. They are a matter of life and death for some people. So we can't just sit in our universities and pontificate about these issues as if they're not real and that they're not about life and death. Because for some people, they are. As an intellectual exercise. Yes, right. which for me sometimes yeah. is incredibly useless and futile. So yeah, I think we need to get out of our heads as academics. And when I, I think, and I think Franz Fanon talked about the fact that decolonization is, is political, it's violent. 
It's about rupturing. It's not about maintaining the status quo. And I think the 21st century decolonial turn, although it sort of positions itself or purports to be very political, is very apolitical and very ahistorical. So do you think it can be political? And what do you think needs to happen, essentially, for those ruptures to start cracking and dismantling? I think part of it is, again, connecting your scholarly work with social movements on the continent, right? So, you know, I talk about um, the anti-homophobic movements across the continent that are incredibly vibrant and alive. Again, some really difficult circumstances. People are speaking truth to power at the cost of their lives and their, their livelihoods. There are some incredible movements around pushing against autocratic, autocratic rule. So look what happened in Sudan, South Sudan. I mean, Sudan particularly. Look what happened in Algeria recently. Look what happened in Burkina Faso a number of years ago in Egypt, even though the political situation post-Tahrir Square and the Revolution of Dignity is still a problem in Tunisia. So these are real movements. They're not far removed from who we are as, as scholars. They're not removed from who we are as possibly uh, you know, activists who happen to work in academia. So I think we really need to figure out how to get to these social movements, document their successes and failures, connect with activists on the ground to figure out how we can be allies. Again, this is not an intellectual exercise. This is hard, really difficult stuff that we have the power to do. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like academia is that you do have the autonomy and you do have the institutional backing to do a lot of these really difficult political things without necessarily being fear in fear of your life. You know, Oxford University gives me the space and the scope and the position to speak truth to power in a way that I wouldn't be able to if I necessarily were on the ground in Liberia or Sierra Leone or elsewhere. So I think there's a responsibility in that privilege Mm -hmm. that we have that I fear and Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that academics don't take seriously, unfortunately. Bringing us to the most recent thing that you've written, actually, which is, I think, one of your most clear demonstrations of speaking truth to power, which was your latest article based on a keynote speech that you gave at the DSA conference last June. Yes. And it's called Decentering the White Gaze from Development, right? Yeah. And it was published in the Development and Change Journal. So what do you refer to as this white gaze <laughs> um, of development? And why, why is it crucial to examine it? Sure. So I think in, in very simple terms, the white gaze is basically measuring black, brown, and other non, or non-white people of, or people of color against the standard of whiteness, right? Northern whiteness. So this is whiteness that's based in Europe. Whiteness is based in North America. Whiteness is even based in, in, in Australia, even though it's not geographically in the global north. Um, and their political, economic, social processes as the standard, as a norm for everything else that everyone else should be doing, right? Forgetting to realize that a lot of these countries colonized large portions of the world that they had an industrial base that was based on slave labor, that they have basically structured a system such that they continue to thrive and prosper based on the backs of black and brown people. So I find that to be very contradictory. And I think development uses, again, that standard of northern whiteness Mm -hmm. to measure the political, economic, social, cultural processes of people of color in the so-called global south, failing to realize that systems of slavery, colonialism, imperialism, even globalization and neoliberalism still exist and still fashion and, and enable 
structures of power to continue to thrive in that way yeah. based on race and place. Yeah. So that's basically what I what I mean by the, the white gaze of development. And basically what I'm saying is that development is a very racist, both in terms of its theorizing, its scholarship, its politics, uh, as well as the way that it's practiced mm-hmm. um, in reality. Oof. And I mean, this is a big ask, but what needs to happen? <laughs> Essentially, I mean, this I mean, now that we've named it, that hopefully race can become to be you know, more mainstream, as has gender, as has class, what needs to happen? So one of the recommendations that I make, again, because the the article is based on a keynote, I was very practical. I mean, I talked about the the theorizing of it, um, and I gave some personal examples of how I've encountered race in, in development sectors, in the different spaces that I've worked. So I think the first thing that I would argue and that I do argue in the article is that race has to be mainstreamed. I mean, it's, it needs to be spoken into existence because it exists. So we can't pretend that imperialism was not based on racial structures or hierarchies. We can't pretend that slavery wasn't based on or even the way that global capital moves and flows is not based on racial hierarchies. So that's both in scholarship as well as in policy and practice. So speaking race into existence in these different development sectors. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that I talk about is the fact that the global institutions that really determine how development is structured and how it's deployed So everything from global financial institutions to their NGO proxies, they need to look at their hiring practices, right? So why is it that most people who are in the driving seat, who are in positions of power to determine how development is deployed are white people? And why is it that those who who come into the development sector who may not necessarily push the envelope or challenge the status quo are people of color who've been co-opted by the sector. So yeah, who, who controls development? We need to change that because I think that'll determine how, how policy practice and theorizing scholarship around development is, is somehow reframed. I think another thing that's important is from a scholarly perspective, I find that a lot of development courses don't have race as in the way that they do gender or class, right? So race is subsumed under class or race is subsumed under gender as if, you know, you look at an intersectional approach, um, but race doesn't even factor in Mm -hmm. terms of Mm -hmm. uh, a concrete theme, as you mentioned. So one of the things, the challenge that I, that I give to development scholars is why is it that you can't develop a a race and development module that stands on its own? Mm -hmm. That's not embedded Mm -hmm. in other courses but it actually focuses on race as an analytical frame. Yeah. Um, and that's as important as gender as yeah. cl- and, and, and as class. So I've basically put my money where my mouth is. And at the moment, I'm actually de- developing a race and development module that hopefully oh, wow. will be rolled out at the University of Oxford's Department of International Development next fall. So September, October 2020. And my challenge is that every single development studies or international development degree has this module in race and development or any or some sort of reflection of race and development in the module and the teaching in the scholarship in the knowledge production around around development that's great i'd love to get the reading list yeah yeah i honestly recommend the reading list in my um uh the reference list in my article Mm because i think it has a range of what i like about the keynote in the article is that i really look at race and development, the nexus between race and development from a broad range of different fields. I have a conversation with sociologists. I have a conversation with philosophers. I have a conversation with literary scholars. I have a conversation with people who are writing and working in these different sectors because I think race is a very cross 
it's a cross-cutting issue, and it's also an interdisciplinary yeah. issue. So I recommend the, the reference list, but then, yes, I can certainly share with you the, the reading list for the course. Great, and we can complete. also upload it and share it with others as a resources sure. page on, on this. This would be great. So, I mean, it is a huge issue, and as you say, it seeps into every level and structure and bureaucracy within the development sort of complex sure. and academia. You mentioned hiring practices, and that got me interested because yesterday I was speaking to a Botswanan trans activist mm. and they were saying that the sort of what is called DEI, which is diversity, equality, and then which I hate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just not enough because yeah. of tokenization. Yeah. Right. And then you have this quota system yeah. where you just kind of tick off boxes. Yeah. So how do we overcome tokenizing? I mean, it's a difficult one. And, and I even even in the article, I say that it's not enough to start ticking boxes. Right. Because everybody's saying, oh, you know, there's there, we're decolonizing because we're adding people of color to our reading list. And for exactly. me, it's like, actually, are those people of color challenging the status quo? Because if you just add a, a man of color or a woman of color to your reading list and that person basically reproduces the same tired racist tropes about the so-called global south, then that's not decolonizing and that's not rupturing. Yeah. So I think in the same vein, hiring practices have to also be about rupture, mm. right? So I've been accused of being too radical. And in many ways, a lot of very traditional universities or traditional development studies departments wouldn't necessarily be interested in somebody who interrogates race. Yeah. Um, but that's precisely the kind of person you want. It's a plug for me to get hired. Yeah. But <laughs> aside from that, I think we need to really be looking for the people who are the rabble rousers, yeah. those who... Uh, think outside of the box, who are not interested in maintaining the status quo, who are really interested in taking this this sector, this industry, and turning it on its head, both in scholarship as well as in policy and practice. And until we do that, until we find those individuals, because they they exist, it's yeah. not like they don't exist, yeah. um, the, main, the, the, the status quo will still be maintained. And I think there's some people who have a stake in maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. Those are the people mm -hmm. we need to mm -hmm. call out. Those are the people we need to name and shape. Um, and those people who are changing, you know, the discourse, those people who are challenging the status quo are the people we need to name and fame. Yeah. Because I think this thing is, ne is never going to change. It's, the, the hierarchies between so-called global south and global north, these hierarchies are entrenched. Um, and it's going to take some very visionary, revolutionary thinking to really, again, just change it, transform it, um, make it work for the people who it's supposed to serve. Yeah. Um, and I think at the moment, it, it's not, it's development is a disservice to the people it's supposed to serve. Oof. Yeah. So I think the concept of, of Global South and Global North mm. and those binaries, I mean, of, that we moved, we're moving hopefully away from developing developed. Yeah. Um, north, but North and South is still, still exists. Exists. Yeah. And there's other binaries that are, that present many problems. And yeah. I, I mean, even yourself in your, in your articles and in your own research, you've studied the sort of Souths within the South, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the Norths within the, the South. Yeah. So the difference between diasporic and returnee Liberians, for example, as opposed to homeland Liberians, sure. and the power asymmetries that exist within that, as well as a, as a factor of internalized colonization. So sure. how essentially do we deal with those layers within mm. the white gaze as well? And how do we tackle those internal colonizations in our South? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, that's a, I'm glad you brought it up because I think Quite often we think about the South and the North as mm -hmm. fixed and not changing and not fluid. But I think even within the South, even within the North, 
their hierarchy. So I always tell people that my students, in fact, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how do you look for the North and the South and how do you look for the South and the North? And this is a, one of the ways of decentering the white gaze is that when I was a high school student, I went to a church that basically deployed us to the Appalachia Mountains during the summer of our of all of our high school years. And I don't know if you're familiar with the United States, but the Appalachia Mountains are some of the most depressed areas of the United States. People are living in abject poverty. So there's a certain blasphemy in calling the United States or parts of the so-called global north developed, right? Because what is development? What does it mean to be developed as if it's some sort of... um, Yeah, exactly. Or even um, an event and not a process. Mm. And all of us mm. are different stages of development, depending on how you define that, right? So I think that's that's part of it, is looking at these so-called fixed geographic spaces um, and really kind of turning them on their head and looking at different forms of inequalities, mm-hmm. different forms of hierarchies, whether they be racial, whether they be based on class, whether they be based on caste. I mean, a lot of my Indian friends, I say, well, isn't caste a form of racism? Um, and many of them are jarred by that. But again, it's taking these concepts that we've sort of, they're received wisdoms that we've accepted as the norm, as, as, as fixed and not fluid, and really challenging them, interrogating them, comparing them to different parts of the world and saying, well, doesn't this exist here as opposed to here? So yeah, for me, it's, it's taking a really intersectional approach. And I think for me, race is an important analytical tool for doing that, but to also not forget about class as an analytical tool, not to forget about caste as an analytical tool, gender. Sexual orientation is one that's becoming increasingly important in terms of looking at inequalities. Everything from age, ability, these are social qualifiers that sometimes we take for granted when we're talking about development, but often shape and determine how people access resources. So I think that happens both in the so-called North, but it also happens in, 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 in the so-called South. I mean, this discussion, it's, it's so dense and it's so packed with nuance and layers and complexity that sometimes it might even disengage again, Mm -hmm. once again, with, with realities and it becomes a a game of words or of framing vocabularies as Mm -hmm. opposed to realities. Mm -hmm. And so how do we essentially bring it back down? How do Mm -hmm. we popularize Mm -hmm. and break the ivory tower of these conversations? What are the tools that we can start using? or that already are being used that we should continue using? What, sure. are, what, what do you I think? I think what I do quite often is I talk about the fact that lived experience is a site of knowledge production because we can become so caught up in these theories, these ideas, these concepts that we forget that our lived experience, the world that we inhabit in our own skin is also a site of knowledge production. So I encourage my students to talk about their lived experience their lived experience of being black, brown, white, green, yellow in the world that they that exists today and how that experience shapes, again, how they experience the world um, and how the world receives them. So in my scholarship, as well as in my non-scholarly work, I'm all about talking about stories. So these narratives for me are really important. So for people who eventually do read the Decentering the White Gaze, I start with a couple of anecdotes from my experiences working both with the Liberian government as well as working with the African Development Bank. And I use that as an entry point to talk about how whiteness and maleness has a certain level of gravitas in development corridors and how being a black African woman is the complete opposite of whiteness and maleness and how I occupied that space, but how the space was not ready to receive me. And I think those stories are stories that are valid, sometimes more valid than the theorizing 
And I think it's important for us to use these case studies, these lived experiences as case studies when we talk about development, how it's practiced, but then also how it's experienced by real people like you and me. Storytelling as a form of political education. And I think that's where, you know, my literary kind of orientation enables me to, to bring this in. So a lot of my, if you look at my reading list, it has um, novels yeah. as a part of the text, the core yeah. text, because I think novels have a lot to teach us about the world. And I think those who write in the literary realm have such insight <laughs> into lived yeah. experience that we often dismiss it when we're Absolutely. talking about these very hard issues yeah. like development yeah. Yeah. and what it means to, to be a northerner or south, a southerner. Quote, yeah, they're quote. diluted into testimonies or... Yeah. Individual stories as opposed to a collective experience. So, Raptel, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I really wanted to ask you about your upcoming book. Sure. If you can share a little bit about what what this dual citizenship and its discontents in Africa means and what you've been finding out in the process and what we can look forward to. Sure, sure. So, basically, the book is about how citizenship is basically... Um, a continuum of both inclusion and exclusion in Africa as well as outside of Africa. And I use this idea um, to start a conversation about a dual citizenship bill that was introduced in Liberia in 2008 and has since not been passed. So Liberia is only one of eight countries in the continent that does not recognize formally dual citizenship. All the other countries have in the past 20 years enacted some sort of dual citizenship legislation because of large populations abroad in terms of transnational actors, diaspora, so forth and so on. Um, But there's a scholar, there are a number of scholars by the name of um, uh, Mahmoud Mamdani as well as um, Bronwyn Mambi who talk about the fact that if you look at countries that experienced the most high-level colonial era migration, those are the countries that have really difficult contestations around citizenship. What citizenship mean? Who is a citizen? Who is a national of a particular country? And Liberia fits that yeah. particular criteria, fits that um, that description. Um, so what I'm interested in finding out is what is the relationship between development and dual citizenship? Because a lot of policymakers and scholars will argue that there's a symbiotic relationship, right? So dual citizenship is supposed to enhance development. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the Liberia case study, what I argue is that there are contestations around dual citizenship because of Liberia's large population of diasporas abroad that have both hindered as well as helped development. So what do you do with a country where you have large populations who fueled armed conflict but also sent remittances? Yep. Um, and that that contradiction in terms of the behavior of diasporas is one that I'm very, very fascinated by. And so I use dual citizenship as an entry point to ask questions about what is the role of nationals abroad? Um, is it sufficient for somebody to send remittances um, when people on the ground say that residence should be a requirement for citizenship, that you can't just be a, a non-resident citizen? because when you have those kinds of rights and privileges, they also come with responsibilities and obligations. I use Liberia as a small case study in the continent, but I also trace how dual citizenship has been perceived and received, conceptualized as well as practiced in Africa as well as outside of Africa. Oh my gosh. And what the relationship with development, what that relationship is with development, if there is a relationship at all. Ooh, I really look forward to reading that. Thank that you. sounds really interesting. Thank you. So when should we expect it? So hopefully the book will be out definitely by 
early 2021. Okay. Um, I'm going to push it to early 2021 simply because I want it to have enough traction throughout the year as opposed to coming out later 2020. That makes sense. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you so much, Reptel, for all this fascinating talk. We could keep going yes, for a long time. <laughs> and thank you for having me, Maria. Uh, everyone go read her latest article. I'll link it to this blog and podcast, but please do read it. It's, I think it's required reading. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this conversation sparked some reflections for you today. It's a really hard one, especially when many of us come into the work of social change and development with really good intentions. But it is urgent to take this conversation further into our workspaces and communities and to go beyond critical introspection in order to actually take courageous actions that can really help shift the power. Again, a really big thank you to Raptel, who is, in my opinion, the kind of thought leader we so desperately need right now. There are also many other authors, though, and activists and groups doing very important work to tackle deep-seated racism, not only in the development and humanitarian sectors, but really work that applies to all aspects of our lives. We've compiled some of their work and a range of other educational tools in the resources page linked below this episode. So let us know your thoughts, and remember to subscribe for more episodes coming out every week.